Um, real quick, next week uh, we're going to be having a little bit of a, I wouldn't call it a full-on vision Sunday, but David's going to kind of walk us through some stuff of where we're going over the next year or so, and then the following week we'll be getting into the Gospel of John, which we're really excited about. This week we're going to, we'll be in week three, finishing up the, the Bible and series, and as you can see from our sheet, we're talking about suffering this week. <clears throat> the goal of this series has been to help develop a, a biblical worldview and understanding certain current issues, issues that aren't just current, but that have been forever, and then look at some practical ways of engaging the issues. And we talked about anger the first week, and, and of course, fear and suffering, uh, anxiety and things last week. And again, this week, we're talking about suffering. And suffering is such a huge part of our life. Uh, the world we live in is fractured, it's broken. It's broken because of sin, and, and the ripple effects has caused, uh, that, that sin has caused, just reaches in, in, into all areas of our life and, and with, our, with suffering. Even our former topics of, of anger and fear, these are aspects or, or byproducts, really, of, of living in a world that is broken and damaged because of, of sin. When God created the world, there was never supposed to be a holocaust or, or childhood cancer heart attacks, famine, racism, all the things that we deal with day in and day out. And yet, God uses even these for His glory. And this does lead us to a reality that every person, but really every Christian, has to wrestle with at some point in this life. If God is all-knowing, all-powerful, it means He is capable of stopping suffering, and yet, sometimes He chooses not to. Okay, and we all have to wrestle with that. And so how can we reconcile a good and loving God and, and one that allows suffering into people's lives and sometimes chooses not to stop it? And so my goal this morning, it's pretty simple. I want to try to bring uh, biblical hope to our understanding uh, of suffering and, and give us a biblical foundation and theology to help understand suffering. So I've got seven points I want to talk about related to suffering Again, this is not exhaustive, but I hope it's extensive uh, enough to, to help us. And as always, I know that just the reality of life, it seems that some people suffer more than other people. And again, we don't know why that is, but I know that especially during this time, there's a lot of suffering going on in each of our lives. And so what I want to do is I want to pray, and I want to ask the Lord to, to help us all humble ourselves under His Word, especially me. Uh, as we approach this topic this morning. So let me pray and we'll get going. Father, thank you again for the privilege that it is to meet as this small part of your body. And, to, and, and I pray that this morning would, would be encouraging, that the scriptures would speak life into us. It, it never returns void. And so I pray that you help me to get out of the way. You know, let your word just speak to, to everyone here this morning. And, and people that are here and then people that are watching, I just pray that your word... Uh, encourages them, and that we would walk away with a better understanding of, of, of suffering in the world, and even as Christians, how we can respond to it, and how we can care for others in light of it. And so I pray that you would do this, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so the first thing we need to know about suffering is that the Bible is the key to understanding suffering. The Bible is the key to understanding suffering. As we seek to engage the topic of suffering, this must be our foundation. The statement seems fairly obvious as, as Christians, but 
You know, you might be surprised at how often people go outside of the scriptures to try and understand suffering through non-biblical means, or to want to combine what the Bible says with some other type of man-driven, man-derived wisdom to have a fuller understanding of suffering. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter 1.3 that His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Let's talk about this because there are a couple of big ideas here. We wouldn't know anything about God unless He told us. Okay, the Romans 1 tells us that there are people, that people are without excuse because nature reveals some attributes of God, namely His eternal power and divine nature. However, the specific things of God, His attributes of love and justice and mercy and grace, and His omniscience, His omnipotence, His omnipresence, and all of the other things, we know only about those things through the revelation found in and from the Scripture. And not only that, the Bible tells us that because we have this knowledge about Him, that we have all the things that we need that pertain to life and to godliness. So if you're a, a Christian, we live a life to, to pursue godliness. And the Bible just told us that we can do that, that because we have everything we need because of the Scriptures, because of the knowledge of Him. So even as it pertains to the last two weeks, anger and fear, we can know about anger and fear and how to live uh, how to live with them and, and put them to death from the knowledge that comes from the Scriptures. And really what we're ultimately talking about here is this, this theological uh, doctrine known as the sufficiency of Scripture. Okay, sufficiency of Scripture. The, the, by sufficiency of Scripture or sufficient, we mean that, that the Bible is adequate. It's enough. It's all we need to live a godly life. I'm not saying we can't learn from, from things like science or, or, or understand things from outside the Bible. You know, we read books that talk about the Scriptures that are they're not the actual Bible. But if it's true, if it's true, then, then, then those things will testify to the truth of the Scripture, right? Or confirm what the Bible says. You know, we, we believe that if you're a Christian in here, we believe that the Bible helps us deal. Like, none of us would have a problem saying... Yes, Jesus lived the perfect life, died, and was raised so that we could he, could he could atone for our sins, so He could make atonement and we could live with Him forever and forgive us of our sins. And, and that's our biggest problem. And nobody would argue with that if you're a, a Christian. And yet, many people would argue that in light of that, I still need extra help with, with anger and fear and even understanding suffering and marriage and parenting and all these things we so easily go outside of the Scriptures for. And, and we're, this is a sufficiency issue. Again, don't hear me saying don't look for extra help or extra explanation, but what I'm saying is it needs to be rooted in better understanding what the Bible says about those topics. The Bible is sufficient for life and godliness, or it's not. And really, if it's not sufficient enough for, for the regular problems, how then is it sufficient for the big one, right? It, it's, it's, it's either all or it's not. And so this is an important doctrine in our life for helping us understand suffering in particular. We need to build our theological foundation on the scriptures. It's God-breathed. It's, it's living and active words. It is the key to helping us understand suffering. Number two, <clears throat> situations do not define who God is, His character. The Bible does. 
in light of what we just said. Situations don't define God's character. The Bible does. And this is a real temptation we all face. It's a real temptation we all face. And this goes back to my original question. If God has the power to stop suffering, why does sometimes he choose not to? And and again, I don't think that this question is all-encompassing. I think he actually does choose very often, more often than we can know, to stop suffering. But sometimes he does allow it. And when he does, it does not change or define his character. How we respond to situations is, is often emotional first. It's often emotional first. Now, our emotions are important because they do two things. Now, emotions are, God has emotions, we have emotions, we're made in the image of God, they're important. But we need to be careful with them because they can do a couple of things. One, emotions flow from belief. Okay, they flow from belief. So they reveal what we're believing about a situation. Now, I'm not talking about our core foundational faith. I'm talking about in those moments, what are we believing? What are we trusting in to deliver us through some of these hard situations? But if we're not careful, those emotions can also deteriorate beliefs to build up new ones, right? So this is why in in, in 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul tells us to take thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. Let's say you have a, a string of really hard situations, one after another after another. Or it's just, you know, like death by a thousand cuts, one hard thing that lasts for years and years and years. And after a while, you start to question, is God truly good? If he is good, why, is, why won't he hear my cries? Why won't, why won't he answer me? Why won't he deliver me from, from this pain and this suffering? And after a while, if we let those thoughts creep in and we don't take them captive and make them obedient to Christ, it can begin to deteriorate that faith and make us believe things about God that aren't true. Passages like 1 John 4, 8 that says, anyone who does not love God, does not love, does not know God because God is love. God is love. God, it's not something that he does, it's something that he is. Okay, he, he acts out of his character. And any thought that arises that, that is not uh, true to that, we need to, to take captive. We need to make them obedient to Christ, right? This, his character is defined by the scriptures, not our situation. We often, if we're not, we often will be in our situation and look at our situation and then make our judgments on God based on what we, is going on in our situation rather than being in our situation, looking to God and helping to understand the situation in light of who God is and who is, what his character is. So let's talk a minute about God's character. What does the Bible say about his character? Well, we just read that he is love. He is love. Hebrews 13.8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He's never changed. He has always been And his character does not change. He is not swayed in the same way we are by his emotions. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may endure under it. So he is faithful and he helps us in our times of need. Isaiah 6.3 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth 
is full of his glory. So God is holy. He's set apart. He is, he is other. He's worthy of our worship. So God's character is found and rooted in the scriptures. And anytime we respond in our thinking or emotions or, or circumstances drive us to think something different, to question God's character, we need to bring it back. We need to take that thought captive and bring it back to what the scripture says about uh, who he is so that we go forward in a proper understanding a biblical understanding. Okay, number three. God allowing suffering in your life is a part of God's specific plan for you. Right? God allowing suffering in your life is a part of His specific plan for you. This is rooted in, in three passages. Hebrews 12.2 tells us, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So Christ initiates the salvation initiates the faith and then works to perfect it. Philippians 1.6 tells us, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of, Christ, of Jesus Christ. So Christ, again, begins this work in you and will see it to completion. Both of these passages speak to this idea that God loves you so much that he will even allow suffering in your life that be because he knows what we need to get us to the place where we need to go. You might have heard it said that God cares more about your holiness than your happiness. Well, I think that's true. I think there's some caveats, but it helps us understand. It's true. God is transforming us and, and, and changing us and sanctifying us and won't stop until it's finished. He is using the suffering to transform us. The third passage I want to talk about is, is one we know well. We've heard many, many times. Romans 8, 28, and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. How do we know this? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Okay, so we know that all things work together for good for those who love God. How do we know that? Because those who love God have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Your destination has been predetermined to be conformed to Christ's likeness. This again brings us back to the statement that we must wrestle with, that God had the ability to stop suffering and sometimes chooses not to. He could just make us conformed to his likeness. Why the transformation process? He could have stopped the, the drunk driver, the, the cancer, the child from falling into the pool, any of these things. He could have stopped. But hear me, God does not orchestrate evil. He cannot. It, 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 is, it, it is evil. He, he does not do that. He cannot do that. He is holy and loving and good. But he also sees the whole picture, whereas we see a very, very limited picture. My mom loves to do puzzles, right? And she always gets these ones that are kind of intricate. And so you dump all the puzzle pieces out and you see this one little piece. It's like green with a yellow blob in the middle of it. And that's what, that's what we see, right? That's what we see. God has the box that has the whole picture on it, right? And he knows what it takes for us to get where we need to go. And he is willing to, to allow us to, to deal with that, to suffer through it, to get us to where we need to go. But, but, he, but he doesn't leave us there. The, the book of Hosea 
uh, in the book of Hosea, it's a, a, a minor prophet who, who uh, was told by God to marry a prostitute. And this prostitute is unfaithful repeatedly. And it's, and it's an image of God's faithfulness to his people, Israel. And in Hosea 2, it says this, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, which is just a generic name for God or, or the idols that were being worshipped at the time. So you see, the suffering has a purpose, and it's necessary, even if it's hard, because it's in the suffering that we're transformed. And more than that, we aren't just transformed. Our relationship with God is transformed. Okay, the, the, the relationship with God is transformed. He, he said he allures his people into the desert, meaning he's there waiting for us. Right? He doesn't just lead us there and let us go. He allures us into it. He doesn't abandon us there. He's there with us. In the book of Job, Job's wife tells, says, you know, do you still hold your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job says, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, it says, Job did not sin in what he said. You see, Job understood that for us to be transformed, we've got to take the good and the struggle. It's all necessary. God, God knows what he's doing, and we can trust him because he's there with us in the struggle. Right? He's walking with us through the struggle. Number four, Suffering is never an excuse to sin. Suffering is never an excuse to sin. When we're suffering, it, it brings some relief to lash out in anger or, or to have a little too much to drink or to look at something we're not supposed to indulge in some, some type of slight sin. But even if the sin is not what we would consider egregious, it is sin. And Romans says, 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. We want to be careful that in our suffering we don't take a, a relativistic view of sin that, well, it's not as bad as it could be and then the, the offense is not as bad as it could be and, so, and I'm suffering a lot so it kind of weighs itself out. That's not the view to take of sin and suffering. We don't want to say, uh, we'll get a pass this time because we're hurting. Now we should be extra gracious with people who are having a hard time and, and we want to make, uh, we want to be gracious with them but we also want to make sure that we're not sinning in light of our suffering. Remember, how we respond to the broken world, people see. We want to be Christ to that. We, it reveals Christ to the world. We want to suffer like Christ suffered, which this includes, starts with our families, our spouses, our kids, our neighbors, but even in our workplaces and, and, and as far as our little stretch reaches. Now, I want to say something kind of as a side note here. There are people who will tell you, you know what? Go be angry at God. Go be angry at God. He can take it. I want to just help clarify that a little bit. When, remember even two weeks ago when we talked about anger, 
It's, it's against a perceived injustice. So when we say, God, I'm angry at you, what we're saying is, God, you have, you have given or created or allowed an injustice into my life. You are making a judgment call on God. Right? So, so to be angry at God is to accuse him of an injustice, which is wrong and sinful. And I want us to be careful when we say we're angry at God or that we're allowing that to fester and grow. Okay, now I'm not saying when we're angry or when we're frustrated or when we're hurt, we should not go to God. Absolutely we should. And in fact, he wants all of that. But I want us to be careful that in our suffering and in our hurt that we don't go, God, you have allowed an injustice and I don't like it. And so now I'm angry at you. That's, that's sin. And we don't want to do that. Okay, so back, back to the point here. When we're suffering, there's definitely a desire and a temptation to sin. Remember earlier from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overcome you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you can endure it. What you're going through is not new. It might be hard, it might be hellish at times, but it's not new. And we can take hope in that. In fact, if, if you don't know anyone who has dealt with the things that you're dealing with, we can return to Hebrews 4 that tells us that Christ was tempted and tried in every way and yet did not sin. He knows. He knows. He can sympathize with us. Also, this verse in Hebrews 4 should remind us that there is, uh, that, or this verse in uh, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, reminds us that God is faithful. And he will make a way of escape. He won't allow us to be in, uh, tempted beyond what we can endure, but he will provide a way of escape. And friends, sometimes when we're suffering, escape is okay. I'm not saying escapism, but you don't always have to, to justify your, your hard feelings or, or if somebody says, it's time for you to get over it. You don't always have to say, like, you're right, it's time for me to get over it. Let me just be done. Right? Suffering is hard. And it takes the community to help us at times. And it takes the, the word of God to help us at times. But when the temptation comes, escape is okay. We don't always have to fight the temptation, right? Escape is okay. But we don't want to use our suffering as an excuse to sin. Okay, number five. The Bible does not guarantee our suffering will be alleviated in this lifetime. It does not guarantee, the Bible does not guarantee that our suffering will be alleviated in this lifetime. And again, I want, to, I want to tread carefully here because I know that some people struggle with things, even things like we've talked about, anger, anxiety, fear, and they, 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 they have sought ways to alleviate this through, through medicine or, or, or whatever it might be. And, and I'm not here to tell you don't do that, right? I think that's a Christian liberty, a grace that God has given us. We make wise decisions about that. But I, I do want us to, to be reminded that biblically, the goal of suffering is not to get rid of it. The goal of suffering is not to get rid of it or to be delivered from it. The goal of suffering is to be transformed by it. Okay, so James 1 tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet, some translations say, endure trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
What does it say? To count it all joy because eventually the pain will go away? No. It says count it all joy because the testing produces. It produces what? Steadfastness. And let that have its full effect that you would lack nothing. We are going to face many trials and many bouts of suffering in our lifetime. And if our heart's desire, our main desires to get rid of or alleviate the suffering at whatever cost, we're going to miss the reason that God has allowed it into our life in the first place. People, you know, we do biblical counseling here and people often ask the question, well, what makes biblical counseling any different from Christian counseling or regular counseling or anything else? And I would say, at its core, it's the goal. It's the goal. Every other type of counseling that you will ever go to, the goal is to help you alleviate the suffering and deal with it. Okay, the goal of biblical counseling is actually to say, how are you living a life glorifying and pleasing to God, living out your purpose in light of the suffering? Right? How, how are you, you know, what are you thinking about God in those moments? How are you displaying God's goodness and, and, and reflecting Christ in those moments, even in light of the suffering? If the suffering doesn't go away, how are you going to live out your purpose? Now, that's, that's hard to, to fathom because it, it, it insinuates that the suffering may not go away. But here's what I really truly believe about biblical counseling and about the Bible in general, is that when we seek to, to hear God's word, apply God's word, be transformed by God's word, that it does alleviate the suffering long term because it gets our eyes off of ourself and onto others and to the broken world and serving other people. Even last week, how do we deal with fear? One of the ways in which Jesus says to deal with fear is to give, right? Create money bags that never get, give and it will never, you'll never run out. When we, when we are so focused on the hurt and the pain that suffering brings, and there's a lot of it, and some of it's really, really hard. I'm not trying to downplay that. But when we get stuck in this cycle of looking at ourselves and only help to alleviate the pain, we, we have a hard time seeing that our purpose is to glorify and please God in light of the suffering. How do we not take the good with the bad, Job says. Right? And I don't want us to get away from that. So, friends, very often the pain is alleviated in our lifetime. Very often suffering is, you know, James 1, endure it. How do we get through suffering? We endure it. And we live a life glorifying and pleasing to God, but it it doesn't guarantee that it will. But this should also remind us that there is never a moment in our life where we don't need Christ. Right? There's never a moment in life where we don't need Christ. This is what Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 12, when he's you know, seen this vision of heaven and to keep him from being conceited, God gives him a thorn in the flesh. Right? And, and, and this some type of suffering that he is enduring enough to where he asks God three times to please remove this thorn. And God says what? No. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. So, it insinuates again that, that at least in the, in the short time, that that pain is not going away. And, and so Paul says, okay, if he's not taken away, it must mean that I need it. And God knows more than I do. So I'm going to boast in it. I'm going to boast in the weakness because it, it, God's power in my life and through me is made, is made perfect in my weakness. I'm going to boast in that weakness. 
his, his perspective is, God won't take it away, so I'll boast. And that's a different view of suffering than, than, than the world has and that a lot of Christians have. But Paul's view on suffering, I think, is rooted in, in really in the last two points that we really need to, to get here. And that's, that's this. Number six is God will never leave you or forsake you. God will never leave you or forsake you. This means in good times and in suffering. Psalm 121.4 says, Behold, he who, who keeps Israel will never slumber nor sleep. All right, there's never a moment where he's not watching. All right? He, he, he doesn't, none of your suffering has caught, caught God off guard. In fact, when, when Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from the cross? He's actually quoting Psalm 22. I want us to look at it for a second. It reads like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from, from saving me from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but I find no rest. Does this sound familiar? Right? Have any of us laid in bed at night crying this very prayer? Like, where are you, God? Do you not hear me crying out to you? And it goes on to say, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of of the dog, save me from the, the mouth of the lion. And then in an instant it says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then it goes on to talk about getting saved from, from the, the harsh things that have happened. What happened when, when Jesus hung on the cross and he yelled this out with all those Jewish people standing around there, he knew the prophecies, uh, the, the, the people knew the prophecies about the one who would come and cleanse them and Jesus is saying that the first lines of this psalm would not have been lost on them. The, the, the psalm that talks about this distress, this being forsaken by God, but then the rescuer at some point coming and saving the day, and Jesus crying out. They would have known that psalm. They would have understood, wait a minute, maybe it's him. Emmanuel, God with them, never leaving them, never forsaking them, dying for them. God did abandon Jesus. He did forsake Jesus. He poured out his wrath on him and did not save him in that moment. In that moment, he allowed Jesus to suffer the unimaginable. And why did he do this? For you and for me, so that we might be cleansed from the source of our greatest suffering, our souls being separated from God. Right? There, there is, that is, that is the, the greatest moment in, in human history because God said, I'm going to allow suffering into my son's life because it's going to transform eternity for so many, my people. Right? And if God would have said in that moment, you know, you're right, you're right, I need to alleviate that suffering. Done. He could have. But that would have left his, all of his people without hope. But he knew he would never leave us or forsake us. This is why Christ went to the cross. And finally, number seven, suffering can only truly be understood in light of eternity. 
Suffering can only truly be understood, must be viewed in light of eternity. The suffering that we're enduring now is not forever. It will not. If you're a follower of Jesus, it is not forever. After Jesus resurrected, he ascended into heaven and said that one day he would return to his people, and I believe this to be true. And when he does, the Bible says this about what he will do in Revelation 21, 4. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's good news. That's our future. No more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, no more tears, no more death. This is why Jesus was able to endure the cross in Hebrews 12, which says, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. He has the box. He sees the whole thing. He knows. He knows. Returning to the presence of the Father with the the reality that one day he's coming back for his bride and he's going to end all the pain. That's what got him through. That's eternal. And there's another, I think, lesson that we, we need to learn in light of eternity. Generally, when, when I teach on suffering or when we talk about suffering, we say it comes from three areas. My own sin, someone sinning against me, or just the reality of living in a broken and, and fallen world. But I want to add a fourth reason that we suffer here. Uh, David has been reading a book, we've been talking about this a lot, and we want to kind of lay the foundation for some stuff here. I think it's really important that we get this too. We suffer because we love. And I think this is important. Earlier when we talked about God and his characteristics, we said that God is love, right? So everything he does uh, flows out of him being love. And what does that look like? It's choosing to put his love onto us sinners and be faithful to us, not because we're good or deserve his faithfulness, but because he's good and is faithful. Okay, so, so when we love selflessly, without expecting anything in return, choosing to put our love onto something or someone and keep it there, we are choosing to love like Christ. Okay, and, and that almost always comes at a cost to ourselves. When we love like Christ, we will suffer. And in his book, J-Curve, Paul Miller has this quote. He says, love opens the door to suffering. The commitment to love opens us up to suffering that we never would experience if we remained above the fray, distant and aloof. Typically, we define love as the love we choose, not realizing the love we choose almost always draws us into the love we don't choose. Instinctively, we recoil from the suffering and and rethink our commitment to love. Jesus feels this very human reaction when facing the full weight of the cost of love at Gethsemane. He asks, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. When we choose to fully love in selfless, Christ-like ways, we open the door to the suffering that can come from that. You know, in, in our own, my own life right now, Sonia and I have chosen to adopt Samuel and first Rosie and now Samuel. And bringing Samuel home from South Korea has been really good, but it's been really hard. It's revealed a lot of sin in my life and 
in her life, and it's just been hard. We decided to adopt, but that comes with, with language issues and attachment issues and behavior issues from all sides. The decision to love has brought suffering in our life. Maybe for you it's different. Maybe for you it's deciding to, to stay in a marriage. Maybe for you it's deciding to love a, a prodigal child. Maybe it's you're a stay-at-home mom and you've decided to invest your life and your kids, and it's exhausting and hard, and life is full of screaming and poopy diapers, and maybe you're not a stay-at-home mom, and you need to work because you need to make income for your family. Whatever it may be, whatever it is, when we choose to love like Christ, to put our love onto someone other than ourselves, we open the door to potential suffering. But here's the thing. The Bible knew this and actually does not see a problem with that. And in fact, it anticipates and strangely desires the suffering. Right? So, so listen to some of these passages here. I'm just going to read through them and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Okay, Philippians 3, 8 through 11 says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here it is. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection of the dead. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Friends, why does Paul allow himself to be open to suffering? Glory. Glory. Not glory that comes from man, but sharing in Christ's glory in eternity. Last year, we studied 2 Corinthians 4, 16, and 17, but it says this, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Wow. Just let you know we didn't plan that, but it's pretty cool. Put that on the notes for next week. (laughs) That was so atmospheric. (laughs) <laughs> All right, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. For we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The NIV says it this way, and I actually really like the way it says it. It says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And this is a hard word, but it's one of those for me that it's like, oh, wow, that's been there the whole time, right? Like, well, we participate in Christ. Yeah, 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 and his sufferings. Yeah, that's there, but keep going. But when we choose to love in this way and incarnate Christ, it does come with the suffering. To some of us here this morning, it might be something we've never heard. And actually, as David and I were talking, you know, in a couple weeks we start the book of John, and and it will be in it for about a year. And 
we want to study Christ. We want to study his, his, his life, his sufferings, his death, his resurrection. We want to, to live like him, and we want to know him. And suffering is a part of his life. And if we are being transformed into Christ-like character, we, we will suffer. When we follow him, we can expect suffering to be a part of our life. And we wanted to lay the foundation for that this morning. We're going to flush this out for about a year. And of course, we're always here to answer questions and, and we have counseling and all these things, that even as we've been talking about some of these issues. And, and you know, sometimes suffering is overwhelming and, and, and we, we were like, yeah, I understand. View it in light of eternity. Yeah, I get all that. But it's tough and I need help. We, we want to help you. We want to bring you in, teach you the scriptures, help you see it in light of eternity through the context of community. We want to do all those things. The only way to understand suffering, why God allows it, why he chooses to let it continue, is if there's an eternal perspective. So that's suffering, biblically speaking. There's, there's more to it. There's a lot to it. It's hard. It's one of those things that even if you are in here suffering this morning, you might write down, you might fill out the note sheet, and then you're like, yeah, 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 but it's tough. I'll deal with that later. That's okay. That's okay, but we want to begin to develop a, a theological understanding of suffering because, listen, if you're not suffering, one, you will. Two, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 1 that we want to be comforted by God and then be able to comfort others with that same comfort. And so maybe you're not suffering. Maybe you have suffered and you want to know how to help other people. We want to help you do that. And maybe you're going to suffer and you want to understand it. We want to help you do that as well. But for now... We're going to move into communion. Uh, and, and the passage we read in communion, it, it says that when you eat this bread and drink this cup, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that, there's two things here. One, if you're not a follower of Christ in here, and we love you, we're glad you're here, but this meal is not for you. Okay? Christ and, and us as a community, we want you to, to feast and believe on his, his goodness and his love and understand the suffering that he chose, that when he went to the cross for you, it would wash you of your sins, it would cleanse you of your sins, and we could spend eternity together talking about that. But if you are a follower of Jesus, I want it to be a reminder that Christ suffered for you. He loves you. He knows what it means to suffer. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He is with you in the struggle, and one day he is returning to make it right, to wipe away every tear, to end death once and for all. And when we take this meal and this cup, we, we proclaim that. And so we're going to spend some time. The men are going to pass out the, the elements, um, and then I'll come up, and, and we'll, we'll take together. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll take, take communion together. Father in heaven, thank you again for our time. Thank you for the opportunity to, to look to your word. God, I just ask that you would help us. If we are suffering here this morning, that you would help us to understand the scriptures, to believe the scriptures, to, to believe that you are with us, that you will not leave us or forsake us. Suffering is hard. Living in a broken and sinful world is hard, that we would see what's on the other side, that we would see eternity with you. And God, I just ask that you would be with our hearts this morning as we, take to, to, as we partake in, in this meal together, that you would 
that you would remind us that in, in the moment when suffering was the worst, God, you chose to allow it into the life of Christ so that we could spend eternity with you. And we thank you for that. And so be with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.